We'll open with prayer. Uh, as we've been going through uh, Psalm 119 for our prayers, uh, you'll notice maybe that after Psalm 119, there's a strange word there. The word is Lamed. Um, and uh, that is actually the letter that every verse would begin with in, in Hebrew. Uh, I mentioned that, that this psalm is what is called an acrostic. And, uh, and every one of these uh, eight verse snippets each verse begins with the same letter. So the Lamed makes what we would call an L sound in English. And, uh, and so each of these verses would start with that L sound as you worked your way through it. So uh, let, let's pray. Lord, your word is fixed in the heavens forever. It is the thing that, that lasts forever. And your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and because you are the one that established it, it stands fast. By your appointment, all of this still exists today. For all, all things are your servants. If your law had not been our delight, we would have perished in our affliction. We, we will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given us life. We are yours. Save us. For we have sought your, your precepts, your, your, the way that you order this world, the way that you deal with us by your mercy and your grace. The wicked lie in wait to destroy your people, but we consider your testimonies. We have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to move backwards just for a minute, and I'm going to probably try to move pretty quickly through this because I'd like to finish up Romans 3, and uh, I'm starting up a little bit on the late side because of the, the confirmation picture. But uh, we've talked several times about this idea of righteousness being from the outside, that that's really key to the book of Romans and to understanding how we relate to God. And the theological term for this is that it is extra nos. Um, that is outside of us. So we talk about the righteousness of God coming from the outside as a free gift that's received by faith. And that's a very challenging idea to a lot of people because we want to have some kind of righteousness that is essential to ourselves. We want to prove ourselves to be worthy in some way so that you know when it comes to standing in God's presence, we have... A righteousness that that is actually part of who we are and God says no that's not how this works you don't have a righteousness that allows you to stand in my presence you might have a righteousness that lets you stand in your relationships with your neighbors what we would call a civic righteousness that makes you stand out and be impressive to the people of this earth but at the end of the day, the only righteousness that gives us standing before God is the righteousness that Jesus gives us, this righteousness that comes from outside. Uh, as I was doing some reading this week and, uh, and, and thinking about this, it struck me that even God's law is something that comes to us from the outside. This law that we would look at and say, um, you know, oh, I measure up or make ourselves think that I measure up to what, what God, yeah, I like what, you know, making that little checklist and, you know, I'm going through that. 
But the reality is that this law condemns our sin. Uh, the, the, the very thing that we seek to use to prove our righteousness becomes a statement of condemnation. But this also comes from outside of us. And that too is an offensive idea in this world. We want to be sufficient in ourselves. And so when, when you think about where do people look to determine right and wrong, they, they often look inward to determine what is right or, or to figure out what is wrong. You know, and, and uh, you know, so we have all of these statements like, you know, uh, follow your heart. Um, search, your, search your feelings, Luke. You know, all through the, the, the Star Wars saga, you know, it's always turn inward. And that is just a reflection of, uh, you know, some very, very contemporary theology. You know, it, you know the, the idea then is that th these things are inside of us, and, and so we look within. That's a typo on there, that should be within. Um, and when we do that, that's essentially a, a rebellion and a usurpation of God. And it's putting ourselves in God's place. Because instead of the subjective standard that we seek to live by, God's law stands outside of us as an objective standard. And the message that it speaks over and over again is condemnation against our sin. So you know, both of these ideas, finding our righteousness uh, apart from the righteousness that comes by faith and finding our law apart from the revealed law of God, essentially what it does is it puts us above God and it rejects his word as authoritative. And it places something inside of us in the seat of authority over the word and therefore over God. And so we want to, we want to leave these things outside of us, even though we're going to try to find ourselves underneath them, coming to us as gifts. And, and I, I, I thought that was kind of important. You know, we've been, we've been hitting this idea that the righteousness is outside of us, but the condemnation and the law is also outside of us. You know, so for, for us to overcome the righteous, the, to overcome the condemnation of a law that stands outside of us, we need a righteousness that comes from outside too. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at. And that we spent a good amount of time really digging into last week in that, that section that you know, now the righteousness of God apart from the law has come and it is revealed and received by faith. So picking up on Romans 3, verse 25b through 26. This righteousness of, law, of God from the outside has been revealed to us. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So one of the things that's kind of hard to see in this passage because you're dealing with a translation is that these words, righteousness, just, justice, justifier, they all come from the same word family. The word righteousness in Greek is the word dikaiosune. The word just is dikaion. And then justifier, 
dikayunta. All of these concepts are, are, are tied together. So when we speak of being righteous, we talk about being right with God, living in a right relationship with Him. But when that happens, uh, we are declared to be just, that God does what is right, is the idea behind justice, and that we find ourselves in that, and that God is the justifier, that God makes us righteous. All of those concepts tie together. And, and the word has a sense of moving in the right direction. And, and I think that this is a really neat way that it ties back to some of the stuff that we're reading in Psalm 119. You know, teach us your paths, O Lord. Help me to walk in your way, O Lord. Or even remembering what the first Christians were called. It wasn't that they were Christians. That, that doesn't come until sometime later. They were called followers of the way. Yeah, and so there's like this movement in faith that in faith we receive this righteousness that is delivered by a God who always does what is right and condemns sin and that also provides the very thing that then makes us right with him, forgiveness and salvation in Jesus' blood. And so all of these concepts tie together with God's forbearance, God's patience. And God's forbearance is seen in that he punished the sin of all humanity in one moment. It's like he, he, he saved it all up and he waited until the moment was right and, and to, to punish all sin. And he does that at the cross. That, that all of this, um, all of the time of, of the, uh, the, well, what we call the Old Testament, uh, and, and really even looking ahead into the future, you know, it's, it's God showing his patience with humanity in order to rescue human, humanity. So God recognizes there is a problem that people have rebelled against him, they have usurped his authority, and that can't, that can't stand. And because he's just, he has to do something about that. But in his mercy, he also chooses to be a justifier. And so he says, I'm going to just let that kind of build for a while. And I'm going to handle it when the time is right. And in Galatians chapter 5, it says, When the fullness of time had come, when the time was right, God sent forth his son to be born of woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those born under the law. So when we see Jesus in his ministry, in Matthew 27, verse 46, on the cross, there is this very poignant moment where Jesus cries out with a loud voice, and we get a little bit of Aramaic here, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which, growing up in the church, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is God's justice. It isn't even just that Jesus was beaten and pierced with nails and physically suffering. The justice of God calls for us to be utterly separated from him.
to live completely outside of his mercy, his goodness. You know, so I don't know about you, but sometimes I've been traveling around. I'm like, how, what is this godforsaken place? None of us knows what it's like to be godforsaken because Jesus was actually forsaken by God on the cross. And that was the just punishment for our sin. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is described somewhat differently when it says that for our sake, God made Jesus him to be sin who knew no sin. So God made Jesus not just to carry sin, but actually to become sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, in, in, in becoming sin, basically so identifying himself with us that, that he takes all the sin of all humanity in all time upon himself so that when God looks upon him, all he sees is that sin and leaves him forsaken, we are then left with the righteousness that is received by faith. And God does this to be just and the justifier. Yeah, Kathy. Not We're going to get into some of this as we go through Romans, but there's some interesting stuff there in terms of sin's ability to touch you. So sin still exists. Yes, yes, but, yeah. but as we go through the book of Romans, um, I think it's in chapter 5, it's going to tell us that it's kind of like, you know, when a woman's husband dies, you know, and she's free to marry again, right? And... She's not an adulteress because that's a till death do us part relationship. Sin's kind of like that. It's a death to us, death to death till us part uh, relationship in, in that, that sin can only touch us as long as we're alive. And so, and I'm getting even further ahead in Romans chapter 6, those of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ's death. So Jesus then, who dies for us, gives us his death, and that separates us from sin's authority over us. So Jesus stands under it, he dies in our place, and that then sets us free from the, the law and the sin uh, that condemns us. All right? So we're going we're gonna to dig more deeply into this as we go through. But here, here's the good news. You died. It happened when you were baptized. Jesus' death was delivered to you. And he took your sinful life upon himself at the cross. And you've been set free then because you've died from sin and its accusation. And its condemnation. And from the wrath of God because the punishment for sin and the wrath of God is death. Yeah. Ed. So if Jesus became sin, not just because he sinner, but became sin itself, 
then Satan was put in the position of punishing sin. Is that the reason he kicked him out after three days? No, no. See, Satan is not the punisher in hell. Satan is the chief prisoner in hell. God is always the one who punishes sin. So when we think about what is our problem, you know, in our relationship with, you know, sin and, and all of this stuff, you know, a lot of times we look at the kind of this dichotomy and we say, well, we've got the devil who is going to torment us over here. Um, that's Dante's Inferno, by the way. That's really not biblical. Uh, and we have... Yeah, we, and we have God over here who, you know, does all the good and the light and all of those things. But really, you know, our, pun, our problem is not, you know, the devil made me do it. The problem is not that, the, you know, the devil is, uh, you know, well, he is tempting us and tormenting us in this life. But the actual punishment, that's God's wrath that then is mediated for us by Jesus who stands in our place to receive the full brunt of that. there more than anything else displays that he's experiencing not just some kind of political movement or you know but that he's actually experiencing the wrath of God you know why have you forsaken me you know and yeah, I mean take it take it back to, to Genesis chapter 3 we keep rooting back to you know the, the curse and that first promise of the gospel you know they're driven out of the garden they're driven out of God's presence but before that happens, they're giving a, giving a promise of one who will stand in their place, who will crush the serpent's head, you know, and basically experience the consequence because it's going to crush his heel. And it says that God did this to display that he is both just and the justifier. God is just he always does what is right he does not tolerate sin and this is something that we tend to soften quite a bit because we do and in a lot of ways we have to in this world you know if you're not going to deal with sinners where are you going to go because we're pretty much everywhere you know, so you, you know, we can't leave this world ourselves, not, 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 not on our own power, not, not under God's pleasure. You know, so, you know, when the time comes, he takes us out of this world. But as he exercises his justice, he looks at sin and says, sin must be punished. And I think a lot of times we overlook how serious sin is. I mean, yeah, we're like, oh yeah, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am utterly separated from your love and your goodness as the right consequence for my sin. 
And so he, he's operating this way, and he is going to judge sin, and he kills sin, he damns sin. But this isn't his only word, and it isn't what we would call his proper work. This isn't the stuff that he wants to do. You know, maybe, maybe you've experienced this you know, in your work. There are parts of your job that you're like, I love this. And then you're, there are other parts of your job that you're like, checking off the things that need to be done. Um, I, I had a, a, a good friend in, um, in Michigan who liked to say um, the administrative stuff in terms of pastoral ministry. He says, that's what I get paid for because the preaching and teaching, I do it for free. You know, so the administrative stuff, he would say, was his alien work, the stuff that, that's just not natural to him. His proper work was the preaching and teaching. God's alien work is punishing sin. He did not create humanity. He did not create you in order to punish you. That was not his plan for you. That was not his desire for you. But that is the impact of sin in our lives. And because he has this, this justice, he says, I'm going to do my alien work. But I'm going to do my proper work over here, which is you know, blessing and mercy and grace. And I'm going to do both of them. So I'm going to be just, but I'm also going to be the justifier. I am going to be righteous, but I'm also going to be the one that makes righteous. And so the Son of God then bears our sin. And going back to last week, talking about you know, the, uh, the, the, the Day of Atonement, and you know, the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and the blood on the people and all of that, the Son of God comes and he's like the scapegoat from Leviticus 16 that is sent out apart from uh, God's love and God's blessing. He's sent away, but he's also like the goat that gets sacrificed. And he provides the blood that atones for our sins in the presence of God. So he justifies. He, by action, makes us right with God. And as we read last week in Leviticus chapter 16, the way that that happens is we become covered by his blood. And his blood removes that sin that separates us from God. His blood then becomes the qualifier to bring us into the Father's presence because our sin disqualified us from being able to, to, be, able to be there. And so, you know, John then will write that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What a weird image. That blood would cleanse. You know, um, in Revelation, it says, you know, that uh, these are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Well, the one thing that, that blood washes away is sin. Leaving us righteous in God's presence. So as I was thinking about this, the question kind of, well, the question came to my mind, you know, how do we view Jesus? 
kind of tying these, these things together that we talked about over the last couple of weeks here, that we have this righteousness that comes from the outside and you know the blood of Jesus connected to the, uh, uh, the hilasterion, you know, the, the mercy seat of God, that place where God meets humanity in his mercy to give us forgiveness. You know, what, what kind of mental pictures then do we get of what God is like? Because for a lot of Christianity, uh, there is this idea out there that he is just kind of separate and distant. That he's up there in his glory, and our goal is then, by our actions and by our piety and by our devotion, to get ourselves up to him. You know, we, we call this the, the cosmic Christ. Um, uh, the Catholic mystic um, Thomas Merton made this idea really uh, popular for a while there. And, uh, and, and it's, still, it's still popular. And even Merton, it wasn't something that was new. Uh, you can read this in 11th century documents if you're inclined to read things like that. Um, but uh, um, you know, they want to see Jesus up there in his glory. In fact, there's a, a, there's a contemporary Christian song I want to see you high and lifted up. You know, yeah. But where does Jesus meet us? Does he meet us as we, you know, kind of climb our ladder up to God? Here and now. Yeah. The picture that Paul presents is not us coming up to Jesus, but Jesus coming to us meeting us in the blood and the guts and the sin as he comes into our lives to embrace us and cleanse us and, and cover us with his blood. And this, maybe this is a little bit further afield than, than um, we ought to go, but uh, I would encourage you to think about this in terms of how we depict Jesus in our art and in our architecture. Um, one of the things that was a, a little bit strange to me uh, when I came to Hudson at first is the, uh, uh, the northeastern um, uh, architecture that all the churches have, pretty much all of them. Um, the Catholic Church really, uh, St. Mary says, no, we're not playing. Uh, they, they did something very modern and, and it's a beautiful church and they've got their stained glass and everything. But every church that I've been to in this community looks very similar to ours um, before it was painted. They're white on the inside, they have clear glass. Um, if they have any kind of art in them, it's kind of nondescript, especially in the, in the sanctuary. And that is actually reflective of uh, American Christianity uh, from kind of the Massachusetts, Connecticut area, because this is the Western Reserve of Connecticut, right? Which is heavily influenced by the Puritans, who were Calvinists, who held as the second commandment, you shall not make a graven image. And therefore, things like artwork are kind of looked on skeptically particularly in a worship setting. 
Whereas the church that I grew up in, uh, and I did my vicarage in, and that uh, Chris and I worked in when we were in St. Louis, huge stained glass windows with pictures of Jesus and the disciples, and you know, and all these you know, beautiful colors and everything, and it's like, interesting. And I'm not saying that either is right or either is wrong. I think that they both have their value and their sensibilities that are connected to them in terms of how you want to depict Jesus. But uh, um, I think this is worth thinking about in, in how do we experience uh, understanding who Jesus is in, in the art that we experience in, in our, our, our churches and, and the like. You know, do we prefer to see Jesus crucified? That we would have a crucifix in front of, uh, of the church? You know, the first time that I did uh, the uh, Vespers over at Laurel Lake, hopefully someday they're gonna let me come back over there. Um, but uh, uh, I came in Lutheran. And, and so the lady who was you know, kind of serving as the, the host, you know, trying to help me to get everything ready, goes, oh, this is a Protestant service. We need to turn that crucifix around. <laughs> and I went, well, you know, we Lutherans kind of fall in this weird in-between place. And, uh, um, you know, and I, I, I didn't like argue with her or whatever because you know, you're in somebody else's house. You don't, you, you, you don't get pushy with them. Uh, but at the same time, I was like, that is an interesting statement. You know, there are people who are very much offended at the image of a crucifix. Yeah? I've just always thought that it was, especially in the Lutheran church, more of a backlash from breaking away from Catholicism and not being wanting to be associated with Catholicism because you go into any Catholic church and Jesus is on the cross, being you know, crucified. And so I've always just thought of it like a backlash. That it's one of those things that Lutherans are like, okay, we don't want to be just like the Catholics, so we're not going to have Jesus on the cross. But I was at an ELCA church down in Fairborn a few years ago, and they do have Jesus on the cross, which surprised me, because being Lutheran, lifelong Lutheran, you just don't see that. Yeah, try, try going to Europe, because <laughs> a lot of them have crucifixes. Mm -hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, and I think... Well, like, like I said, I think that these things are worth thinking about. I'm not saying that it's wrong to not have a crucifix. You know, it's neither here nor there, actually. But in terms of what you're communicating, I think that there are pros to having it and there are cons to having it. You know, I think about the stained glass windows in the church that I grew up in and the things that they depicted and the way that those helped to communicate to me as a child. You know, the same is true of things like, you know, a crucifix. Or what I've often seen, particularly traveling around the Midwest, is that there's a statue of Jesus roughly holding his hands like this, you know, kind of in the backdrop of the altar. Uh, that's what we had on my church in my vicarage in Kansas. You know, and it's just, it's supposed to be like Jesus on, on Easter morning. You know, it's, it's an image of the resurrected Christ. And he's got the nail marks in his hands, you know, so it's proclaiming crucified and risen, but that was very, very popular. You know, you travel around and you see it in all kinds of churches. Chris. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I think that 
had a crucifix at our previous church, and that, and then our tradition was to take him down after Good Friday, and so then the cross would be empty at Easter. And I was just saying, I was just thinking about how when it was, it used to get stored in Eric's office, and the kids would be like, my my kids were really little, and they'd be like bringing their friends back there because <laughs> he's like, I know where Jesus is. <laughs> It's also kind of fun when people would come in and they didn't know it was there and they like, you know, I want to talk to you and they swing the door shut and there's the body of Christ leaning in the corner. They're like, <laughs> uh, it's about this high. It was bought from Germany. It was carved wood. I mean, it was a beautiful piece of artwork, you know, but uh, yeah, interesting. First, I just have to say, you kind of yeah, at Notre Dame, we had one of those at Concordia where he's like. Yeah. But when I was growing up, my stepfather was Greek Orthodox. Mm. And so I would go to church occasionally with them, with his sisters. And there were icons everywhere. Yep. And they rang bells and they had incense. And I did not understand one single word yeah. that was said there. Yeah, so sometimes, um, sometimes the artwork connects with us in a different way. And I think that that's actually important. I think it's important for us to teach why we do those things. So uh, incense is something that uh, I didn't experience in church until I was at the seminary. And uh, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, what is this? Well, it's symbolic of our prayers, rising, smelling sweet. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you have to have incense? Well, obviously, no. But is it sinful to have incense? No. You know, but it, I think it's good to understand and to think about, you know, why do we do these things the way that we do them? Or don't do them? Largely, we don't do incense because we have enough people who are allergic that it would really, really bug them. I was just thinking about this opportunity. I was thinking about the church I grew up in, which had all the stained glass windows, most of which were abstract. I mean, they weren't abstract in the modern sense. Okay. But it was like this space left for future notes, you know. It was just mm -hmm. sort of nice marbling looking effect. And there was one of portrait sort of, of Jesus, one of Martin Luther on the front that were whole life. And then the other side with portraits of Reformation figures. Yeah. And it's all enough, and it still has no impact. <laughs> I was thinking of what you said at your church, that, you know, from the siege, from the Bible, nothing like that. Yeah, and so we could, we could go one of two ways, or well, one of three ways. There's always a via media, you know, the, the middle way. Uh, but uh, uh, we could be complete, completely embrace icons, images, you know, and, and they're, they're just good for the sake of being there. You know, and, and, you know, and there's something special and holy about them. Or we can become iconoclastic and say, these all got to go. Um, you know, and, and chuck them all out. You know, because we don't want to confuse people by thinking that we're worshipping those images. I think that the middle way is a little bit more like, who are these people? Why do they matter? Why, do, why should we think about, you know, this image? You know, and, and I think tying this to Jesus then also becomes how do we teach about him? What do our children understand about who he is and what he has done? 
You know, and and how, how do these images help us to connect to Jesus as the one who has died to us, died for us, and the one who is risen for us, the one who is uh, the recipient of God's justice, but also the one who justifies. Yes. And they had the pictures and they had the statues to teach what they needed to know about God and about the Bible because that was the only way they could get it. Yeah, that is the original impetus for bringing those things into the church is that they were meant to be educational for an illiterate society. And then after you've had them for a long time, you have to have them because we've always had them. Yeah, and that becomes the tradition. But you know, here, here's another thing to think about. In today's society, we're, we're a highly literate society. You know, pretty much everybody can read. Doesn't mean that they do. Doesn't mean that they think of it as meaning. And so how do we connect with people who don't use text? Yeah, I don't mean like phone text. I mean, they, their, their major way of thinking is not like long form uh, text. And I, I think that there is opportunity uh, for the church in using images and, 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 um, and even video. But I think that these are some things that we need to, to figure out. All right, so moving on here. Uh, Paul writes, then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the, the circumcised by faith and the un uncircumcised, excuse me, and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So there is no room uh, for boasting because all, all the real action is, is it's God's action. He's the one who's doing all the work here. Our righteous actions, apart from Jesus, are only imagined to be righteous in God's presence. And so for them to be really, truly righteous, God has to be at work in, in that moment. And so when it talks about a, a, a law of works, uh, Luther wrote about this idea. He says, although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they're nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. So people are out there like, look at all the good. Look at all the good I'm doing. Or look at all the good they did. How could they not be in heaven? Because when they're separated from Jesus, they become a resounding gong. They become filthy rags. Um, Gerhard Ferdi, who's a, 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 he's dead now, but he's a, a modern Lutheran theologian, he wrote this. A deadly sin is more likely a work whose apparent goodness is such that it seduces us into trusting in it and our own doing of it. So it's actually something that, you know, is good, but instead of trusting in Christ to make us righteous, we're like, 
I did this. I trust in what I did rather than in, in Jesus. The symptom of such deadly sins are present when grace is ridiculed for being too cheap or when permissiveness, moral laxity, and so forth are present. Yeah? It also burns on vanity, really. It feeds into our vanity and pride. Yes! And when you think about what, what does vanity mean at the heart of, of that, that word, it's not just, you know, I, I'm so great, but it's that hollow emptiness. So it might look good, but there's nothing in it. You know, um, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is vapor, it's wind, it's gone. You know, and you know, we put ourselves, we put our trust in these things that they're dust and rust, and they, 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 they disappear. Um, and so he, he says what we need is this law of faith. And again, Luther, uh, from the same document, he says, although the works of God are always unattractive and appear evil, they're nevertheless eternal merits. Is there anything that looks worse than the crucifix? Is there anything that looks worse than the Son of God bearing sin, becoming sin, bleeding and dying? And yet that's where God brings righteousness. So the law of faith, it's both passive and receptive. It's passive in the sense that there's nothing that we do in order to, to uh, achieve this righteousness, and it's receptive in the sense that it is given to us completely and totally by faith. And, and verse, verse 28 um, is, this is a really important concept, and I think that this is a really um, radical and offensive idea in our world. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So if you're going to have standing before God, if you're going to be righteous before God, at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with your performance and everything to do with what God has done for you. So even when we do good works, those don't earn any kind of righteousness. They're not good in any sense before God apart from faith in Jesus. And they are received completely and totally by God's grace. Now, did I just say don't do good works? I did not. And we're going to come back to that because as it says at the end of this, you know, we don't overthrow the law. We uphold the law. We hear what the law has to say as people who have been forgiven and redeemed. And now we're going to seek to, to follow it. Uh, but, but first, um, this, this idea that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Uh, Luther writes, the works of the righteous would be mortal sins if they would not be feared as mortal sins by the righteous themselves out of pious fear of God. So no matter where we are in our lives, our confidence in terms of being righteous is God's grace and his mercy, not our action. Because in the end, it's only faith 
sola fide, right? That's, that's one of the, the, the solas that we stand by. It, it's only faith that justifies. He's just and justifier, and now he's justifying. Dikai o'o. Um, and so he, he actually does this work in us to bring us back into a, a state of righteousness. And all of this is rooted in the idea that God is one. If you go back into, uh, again, what we call the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the creed of the Israel, Israelites, it was called the Shema, was hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's only one. And he is perfect in his unity. And as we get to know him across the scriptures, we understand this, well, we confess this idea that he is three in one, but he is one. He is the only one who is able to make these things happen. He's the only one with the power and the authority to bring us back into a right relationship with himself. So in Isaiah 45, verse 12, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I made the earth and created humanity on it. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. All these other things that you look to for your security and, and everything else, they're all created. I'm the one. And again, in Isaiah chapter 45, this time in verse 20, he says, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior, and there's none besides me. He's the only one. He sets himself up as righteous, he is just, and savior, justifier. And then uh, there is only one God who rescues all and his plan of salvation worked through the Jews to bring justification to all who have faith in Jesus' blood. And so having experienced that salvation, having received this, this righteousness as a gift, our relationship to the law changes. And it's no longer a matter of this burden over us in order to you know, gain God's pleasure or, or to stand in his presence or any of those things. But it becomes an expression of the wisdom and the love of God, our creator and our savior. And when I, when I read Psalm 119, I see this over and over again. I love your law. How is that possible? Because it's connected to your statutes and, and your great deeds of old, which include my salvation. And so, because we have been made righteous, because God is just and justifier, we recognize the power of the law and its condemnation and the incredible gift of God's forgiveness in Christ. We uphold the law but not as a means of our salvation. We say, yes, that matters. Because this is part of God's expression of, of who he is and what he does for us. But at the same time, it's not going to make me right with him. That's only faith that's going to do that. 
So Luther says the law of God, he calls it the most salutary doctrine of life. Salutary means life-giving or health-giving. You know, it, where, where do we use that word in the liturgy? Communion, yeah. You know, it's good, right, and salutary that at all times and all places we should give thanks to you. It, it, this, this, this right relationship with God is life-giving and health-giving. So, and this law is a, a salutary teaching of life and it cannot advance humans on their way to righteousness, but rather hinders them. The law always accuses and always stands against us. So why uphold it? Because you have experienced God's mercy and grace. Because it is true. Because its condemnation against you and I was right. Just as God's love and mercy were right. We uphold the law because it is actually good. We uphold the law because that's what love looks like when we relate to our neighbors. We uphold the law because it's God's will and way. And having received his love and loving him, then we seek to live within his will and way. It is wisdom. And I think one of the most important reasons for us to uphold the law is that it is needed by our neighbors. That this is part of how we care for one another. So, I gotta cut it there, but we got through chapter three. <laughs> chapter four, next week. Uh, I, I should say start chapter four next week. God's blessings, everyone.